Welcome to Liquid Church Media. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins. Glad you're here today. This is kind of the big culmination of our series, The United States of America. And if you're new, we're kind of leaning into this tough a uh, touchy topic of race relations, not just in America, um, but actually in the larger culture and really even in the church. And I say that with a capital C because it's been a very um, eye-opening, kind of intense conversations, particularly at a lot of our campuses. Let's put it this way. I have gotten a lot of email, uh, kind of buried under an avalanche of email, just people sharing their thoughts and experiences. And just so you know, I do read every email uh, sent my way, but I apologize. I simply lack the bandwidth to you know, reply personally to each one. But my hope that the series is going to kind of help jumpstart a candid conversation at every Liquid campus where we can kind of talk one-on-one on our service teams and our life groups with campus leaders about how do we, uh, what is God's dream for unity amidst kind of our dazzling diversity as a church. Some people were surprised last week to learn that Liquid is a pretty diverse church. In fact, uh, I shared the racial profile of our congregation right now across all campuses. So like today, um, our congregation is about 56% white, 23% Latino. 9% black, using black as a broader category because we know there's you know, African-American, West Indian, et cetera. And then about 12% Asian. And I look at that, I'm like, that's awesome. That's very encouraging to me. First, because it really reflects the state of New Jersey, which is among the most diverse in the nation. I really believe like a church should look like the people it's trying to reach and serve. And secondly, um, right now you probably haven't noticed, I shouldn't say probably haven't noticed, you've probably noticed, there's an enormous demographic shift underway in America really for the last, you know, couple hundred years from majority culture that's predominantly white to one that's very racially diverse and multi-ethnic. Just consider this generational trend right now among millennials. Um, right now, today, one in two children, every other kid under age five, are not white. By 2018, it'll be one in two students under age 18 not white. And by 2042, every other person in America will, will not be white. So that's, that's a pretty dramatic complexion shift that we will see in our generation and our country really is becoming more diverse than ever, and so are our families. In fact, interracial marriages are up from 1 in 20, that was in 1960, 1 in 20, to 1 in 7 today. So let me tell you, that kind of, for me, encourages us as we become more and more a multi-ethnic church, not because it's like, you know, cool or relevant or like some strategy for growth, but because it's biblical. It's actually the right thing to do, and it is the heart of the gospel, the hope of the gospel in the 21st century world that is very much um, cynical, very divided about this. Now, the second reason we kind of embrace racial diversity at Liquid is because I think it helps us move past a lot of those really like petty little debates about race you sometimes hear in church. You may have heard of the two brothers who are always arguing whether Jesus was black or is Jesus white. And the one brother is like, oh, Jesus is definitely white. You've seen the pictures, you know, on the internet. He's definitely a white guy, you know, with long hair. And then the other guy's like, no, no, dude, he's, he's definitely, Jesus is black, or at least dark-skinned. He's from the Middle East. Both brothers die on the same day. And when they arrive to heaven, they get all excited because they're like, finally, we're going to settle this once and for all. So they run to the pearly gates. They see Peter there and say, settle our debate. Is Jesus black or is he white? And at that very moment, Jesus himself walked by and said, buenos dias. <laughs> you know, I think, I think we're all going to be a little surprised when we get to heaven, right? And we see this incredible diversity of God's family described in the Bible. In fact, look at this picture that Revelation 7 uh, paints uh, of God's family in heaven. The Apostle John says he saw a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, 
all standing before the throne, worshiping God together. So understand, if you're a Christian, that's your future family. You see, this is how it works. When you give your life to Jesus Christ, you join this international, interracial, multi-ethnic family. That's where history is headed. When God pulls back the curtain of eternity, it's cross-racial, cross-cultural, cross-class, more diverse than any earthly empire. So one of the reasons we're kind of teaching about race is really to prepare you better for heaven, all right? So if you're like here today and you're like, I don't know if I'm so comfortable with all this diversity. I got news, you ain't going to like heaven very much, okay? Remember, your heavenly father invented variety, and his dream, this is where it's going, is unity amidst diversity of people from different backgrounds and races, which is why we kind of hit the sin of racism so hard last week. We really have to call out and confront that cultural poison. Because racism is the uh, black eye of American history from the birth of our nation with you know, slavery and segregation to the present day where there is systemic racism that infects our country and our culture and too often the church as well. You know, Dr. Martin Luther King once said, he said, the most segregated hour of the week is Sunday morning. But it's a really a multi-ethnic church. We want to be committed to change that. Amen? Clap if you're with me. Are you with me on that? We're trying as a church... Imperfect church, but we're trying to come clean before God about our own biases and blind spots because we all have them. I mean, every race, every culture has them. And we're trying to kind of lean into this awkwardness so that we can reach across racial and class lines to embrace each other as brother and sister in the family of God. And so it's led to some very powerful conversations right now at our campuses. Uh, last Sunday, we had one woman who was an African American woman in her 50s. She said this subject brought back a lot of painful memories for her because in the 60s, she said, I was part of the racial riots in Newark, New Jersey. And she admitted that she and her friends were just, she said, we were just filled with such hatred because we had such great frustration for how the black community seemed kind of neglected and mistreated at the time. And she just started sobbing, you know, as she shared this story with one of our leaders. But what's inspiring is how God kind of stepped in to heal the hatred in her heart in a pretty, pretty remarkable way as she learned about this love of of God, how, how God reached down, right, while we were still sinners, sends Jesus Christ, and then Jesus Christ sacrifices his life to forgive our sin. She said, I just realized how wrong my own hatred was, how Christ doesn't want us to be filled with hate and revenge, but with love and compassion for one another, right? They'll know we're Christians by our love. And she said, it was hard to change her thinking. She said, I was so just conditioned by prejudice and hurt, but she said the, it kind of changed because the Lord uh, revealed to her, she said that verse where it says, our struggle isn't against flesh and blood. In other words, we want to make it about that. She said, but it's really a spiritual issue. We war against principalities and powers of this dark world. So at its core, understand what we believe. As Christians, we believe racism is a spiritual issue. And that it's one of the ways that God is right now warring with, with the enemy of our souls. And she said, I realized loving and hating was a choice I have to make every day. And it was incredible to hear her say how over time, the Holy Spirit did this very deep work of healing in her heart. And she said, the, the hate is just no longer there, praise God. And she says, I now see opportunities every day to love as sacrificially as Jesus did love me. Guys, that's the power of the gospel. That really is the power of oneness. Remember, God doesn't just save us for heaven when we die. He gives us a new power on earth to live in love with each other, understand? Supernatural unity. Christ, the cross really um, reconciles this racial divide. It just means that the cross reconciles us vertically with God. We repair a relationship with our Heavenly Father. But then the cross also goes horizontally, gives us this new power to reconcile relationships with each other. That's the power of oneness and the title of today's message. The power of, let's say this word together, ready? Oneness or unity in Christ. I'm not sure if you knew this, but uh, there's a prayer 
that Jesus prayed that's never been answered. It's interesting because all the prayers that Jesus prayed pretty much were answered by his father during his time on earth. But there's one specific prayer Jesus prayed that was never answered in the first century and is still awaiting one 2,000 years later. And I want to read that prayer together. It's found in the Gospel of John, John chapter 17. You can look in your Bible or phone or in your notes today. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer in which he prays for unity among his people. So let's read this starting at verse 20. Jesus kind of praying for his 12 disciples, and then he says this. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So he's saying, I'm going to pray for all the believers to come. Like, in other words, us, modern Christians, we believe because of their message. So Jesus is praying for us. And what's his prayer? That all of them may be, what's the word, church? One. Father, just as you are in me and I'm in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be, say it together, one as we are one, I and them, you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And what's the result? Then the world will know that you sent me and you've loved them even as you have loved me. What's the prayer Jesus prayed 2,000 years ago that's never been answered? A prayer for unity, for oneness among his people in the church. I want you to think about this. The night before he died, Jesus prayed for me and for you he said, my deepest desire is that they may be one as we are one. That modern Christians would be brought to such complete unity that the world will actually know that I am the Savior of the world. Guys, in a moment when our culture is like more dazed and confused and growing darker by the hour, what is the light of the gospel? How will they know the saving truth that Christ alone is Lord and Savior? By our what? Unity. Only when my church, Jesus says, is unified as one. When all the races, classes, cultures come together under the name of Jesus, then the world will know that he's Lord of all. You know, some people are like, well, then how come there's no power in the church today? Because there's a power outage in the church. You know why there's a power outage in the church? Because there's no unity in the church, in God's house. Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And that's told true whether it's God's house, your house, the White House. Division is like poison. It's destructive. And we can't expect daddy's going to listen to us when we don't play by the house rules. So understand, this moment of racial division is very ripe in our nation. This moment of cultural crisis is the church's chance for us to be the answer to Jesus' prayer, to stand up and lead the way, because we have the only message in the world that can heal the divided states of America and truly make us one. Now, some of you are like, well, that's all well and good, Tim, but what, is, what does that look like in real life, right? What does oneness really mean? I'm glad you asked. See, Jesus doesn't just like pray and plead for oneness in his church. He shows us actually how to do it. Jesus was a teacher. He's a Jewish rabbi. It just means teacher. And he knew that his followers would stay bitter and bigoted if he didn't give them a living demonstration, a model for how to build bridges across racial barriers and unleash this power of oneness. And so in John chapter 4, Jesus lays out a template for us. This is a model for us to follow if we're like, you know what? I would like to be the answer to Jesus' prayer. Now, you can flip to John 4 or follow along in your notes. I don't have time to read the entire account. But this is the, Jesus, the story of his, of his encounter with a woman from Samaria. Can you guys say that together? Samaria. This was a place you wanted to avoid if you were a good Orthodox Jew, okay? Here's why. There was tremendous racial hatred 
between Jews and Samaritans, okay? Going back 700 years. These guys had a very ugly history. In 722 BC, the, uh, the Jews in the northern kingdom of Israel were captured by the Assyrians. So they were kidnapped. And some of them in captivity interracially married the Assyrians. And so the Jews were so angry, they're like, they're destroying our racial purity. So Samaritans were a mixed race. They were half Jew, they were half Gentile. Gentile just means non-Jew. 90% of us are probably Gentiles. And the Jews hated the Samaritans because they said, you are half-breeds, you are dogs, and all these racial slurs. They actually considered Samaritans subhuman. In fact, just to give you a, a sense of the racial hatred between Jews and Samaritans, this week I researched a little bit. Here are a few writings from the time of Jesus. One Jewish writer wrote this, Samaritans were created by God for one purpose, to be fuel for the fires of hell crazy. If you see a Samaritan pregnant mother in distress, it is not lawful to help her because it would simply bring another Samaritan into the world. Don't help a pregnant lady. When a Jew entered Palestine, he actually would immediately take his sandals off and ceremonially shake the dust, lest he bring in any Samaritan dust and contaminate the Holy Land. That's how bad it was. And of course, if you were a Jew and you married a Gentile, your family didn't have a wedding. They held a funeral because you were dead to them. That's the depth of racial hostility between Jews and Samaritans in the first century. For seven, seven centuries, they had this vicious blood feud that began with interracial marriage and then fractured along racial lines. And John says in chapter 4 that Jesus just had to go through Samaria. <laughs> now understand, it's not like, oh, well, I guess, you know, his travel route, his GPS route him through Samaria, poor guy. <laughs> Is it talking about his motivation, like Jesus had to go there. He was compelled to step into this raw racial divide and introduce the oneness that he knew people desperately needed. And verse 6 says this, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about 12 noon. So this was a, a place to go for water and shade from the scorching Middle Eastern sun, and Jesus chose Jacob's well, and there's a reason. It's because both groups, both Jews and Samaritans, they loved Jacob. They considered him one of the fathers of both groups. So notice, if you're taking notes, the first step in Jesus' model of oneness is to always find common ground to meet on. If you're going to build a bridge across a racial divide, you always begin by finding common ground with the other side. What's something you can both agree on? You know, uh, you hate the Mets, I hate the Mets. You love the Yankees, I love the Yankees, you know. Jesus knew this was like a hostile environment and that people are going to naturally kind of have their hackles up. But watch, he intentionally steps across the dividing line and enters her world. Look what he does. It's shocking in verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a what? A drink. And the woman is like shocked. She's like perplexed. She's stupefied. She's like, what? She can't believe Jesus, the Jew, is asking her, a Samaritan female, for a drink of water. Because Jesus is essentially saying, hey, can I put my Jewish lips on your Samaritan cup? Can I? Whoa! Woo! Very bold, pretty intimate kind of request. Can I, you know, drink from your water bottle? That kind of crosses the line. And it says, the Samaritan woman said to him, whoa, 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 whoa. You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Thank you, Captain Obvious. How can you ask me... For a drink, and then I love this little footnote. This is so understated. In case you didn't know, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, again, we're just like, ah, oh, silly Samaritans, Jewish people, whatever. 
let's bring this close to home because this was awkward and this was uncomfortable. And so I was like, I want to make you awkward and uncomfortable. So in your notes, I printed four very awkward questions, okay, for you to answer in your heart of hearts. And you'll see the first one says, is there a particular group of people, an ethnicity or race, that you just avoid? Because you're like, I don't really like to associate with them. They make me a little uncomfortable, all right? Again, this issue is more complex than like, you know, black versus white, because there's interracial racism all around, right? It, it could be Puerto Rican versus South American, or, you know, you use a, you use a broad bucket. Okay, Asian, well, Korean is not Chinese. And Chinese are like, well, yeah, we're not Japanese. Arabs versus Jews. Oh, I'm from the middle. No, no, we don't. Dominicans versus Haitians. In some cultures, the darker your skin, the lower on the ladder you're considered. That's how the world works. Culture typically sets up these sharp dividing lines between like who's accepted and then who's second class. It's awkward to admit, and it's painful to witness in real life, like I did my freshman year in high school. My freshman year in high school, a new student transferred to our school. His name was Eduardo. And Eduardo was from Nicaragua. And I remember when he first you know, transferred in, he was kind of this you know, skinny kid. He didn't speak English. He looked kind of scared, kind of intimidated. And um, although he didn't speak English, he tried out for our baseball team, our high school baseball team. And he actually made the JV squad. I was on junior varsity with him. Baseball was like very big in our town, okay? We had a lot of great athletes, but our team was entirely white and almost 100% Italian, okay? Every last name on, on my team in high school ended in a vowel, okay? Like Baracco, Verzolino, Di Mattia, and Lucas, you know? There were actually two of us, Lance Johnson and Tim Lucas. Lance was the backup catcher, and I played left out. Eduardo, okay, Eduardo was competing for the right field position, and although he couldn't speak the language, guess what? He was a killer hitter. It was actually incredible. He kid could hit. He hit line drive after line drive. He would just smoke it right up the middle. It was a left-handed bat. And uh, I remember, got the coach's attention. He actually started platooning Eduardo in right field with another popular player, and that's kind of when it began. When he would come to bat, instead of going, you know, hey, Eduardo, um, you guys remember that song, Rico Suave, right? And everyone would go, Rico, suave, you know, and like, okay, like sort of, you know, whatever. And then actually as he began getting more time than the other player, it descended into <laughs> dirty Mexican. What? Came to speak the language. And some of the kids would actually call him towelhead, camel jockey. Understand their slurs didn't even make sense. He was from Nicaragua, not Mexico, not the Middle East. But high school boys aren't care about precision when it comes to cruelty, do they? And then came the bullying. Remember, a group got together after one game, and they took Vaseline and smeared it all over Eduardo's locker and inside of his lock so he couldn't use it. And then they put Icy Hot in his jock strap. And then they put baby powder in his cleats. And every time they did that, Eduardo would never say anything. He would just kind of, you know, clean it up and with a sad look in his eyes. And then the cruelty escalated to the worst incident of all that involved one of these, a water bottle. We were playing a doubleheader in a tournament, Scorching Hot Saturday, down. I remember this. Eduardo had a great game. He hit a line drive to right field. He actually stole second base, and then he tagged up on a sacrifice fly. Very hard to do from second to, to third. And then when the pitcher overthrew a pass ball, he actually scored the run, which ended up being the winning run in the game. Now, typically this is cause for great celebration. But on that day, in Essex County, New Jersey, I'm very sad to say, Eduardo jacked back to the bench, and instead of like getting high fives and great job, fist bumps, Everyone actually grabbed their water bottles and slid down the bench and didn't even look at him. And Eduardo jogged back to the dugout, and he's kind of, you know, his uniform's dirty, and he's sweaty and everything. And instead of getting a, 
you know, attaboy. He got the silent treatment. Everyone ignored him. No one even looked at him. No one said a word. And so he kind of walked down the dugout, and he grabbed a Gatorade bottle off the shelf. Another boy yanked it out of his hand. He said, I don't want your dirty Mexican lips touching my bottle. And everyone's like, whoa, what's going on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And everyone grabbed their own water bottles and said, no drink for Eduardo. He said, I don't want to get infected. Another kid said, no, don't let him drink it. He'll, you'll, you'll, it's like, he'll, you'll get contaminated. He's like a cockroach. Yeah, cockroach. And everyone started going, la cucaracha, la cucaracha. And I will never forget looking at Eduardo's eyes as he stood in that dugout, an immigrant boy, new to America, and his teammates wouldn't even give him a drink of water. In fact, one of the kids started squirting with him and said, go take a shower, you dirty spick. And Eduardo did. He walked out of the dugout, back to the locker room, took a shower, and he never came back. Quit baseball. Never played again. That was 30 years ago, guys. And I'm standing here right now, like three decades later, and I still think about that water bottle and what my teammates did to bully and belittle and shame and humiliate Eduardo. And I don't have a lot of regrets in my life, but one of my great regrets is not standing up and speaking up and saying something when they did that to him. Because I failed as a friend. I failed as a follower of Jesus Christ. Because honestly, I was a freshman and I was scared. I just didn't want the same treatment. It is one of my deepest regrets because I think about how Eduardo must have felt as a human being, as a child of God, bullied and, and mocked and shamed and dehumanized, treated as if, oh, the very saliva from his lips might contaminate another person. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said, will you give me a drink? The Samaritan said, no, 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 you're a Jew, I'm Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? Everyone knows Jewish lips never touch a Samaritan's water bottle. It just ain't done. Jesus, the only thing that passes over Jewish lips in these parts are racial slurs. Half-breed, Samaritan dog, and here comes Jesus, and he's like, yeah, whatever, I'm just really hot, thank you. Oh, that's good, that's good. Thank you. The woman is shocked. It blows her mind. She's like, I, I see you are a Jew, she says. How did she know? The Bible actually doesn't say, but clearly there was something Jewish about Jesus. Maybe it was his accent, maybe it was the clothes he wore, but it, he revealed his roots. See, you have to understand, oneness does not mean sameness. To find common ground doesn't mean we have to hide our ethnic roots or gloss over our racial heritage. Jesus did not hide his Jewishness, but what he did do is he stepped over the long-standing segregation of his society to enter her world and in a very public gesture, taking a sip from her cup communicated, you have great worth in God's eyes. See, oneness is dangerous. It takes courage. Jesus did something no other Jew had done for 700 years. He put his lips to a Samaritan water bottle. Why? Because he said, I'm not here to represent the kingdom of Israel. I represent the kingdom of God. See, oneness is not about unity of color, or, uh, skin color. Biblical oneness is a unity of heart, of mission, of surrender to Christ and his kingdom of love and compassion and equality for all. So as a follower of Christ, understand God is not asking you to give up your race or your background or your cultural history. God is not asking black Christians to become white or white Christians to become black. 
or Asian Christians to become Latino. God's not asking me to like hip-hop, and you don't have to listen to country music, thank God, right? But what Jesus, yeah, all right, I got it from that kid, right? It's like, you heard it, Mom. Don't listen to country music. What God's calling his followers to do, guys, is step over this social segregation every culture promotes and build a bridge to Christ. You find common ground. Because when it comes to oneness, the social always leads to the spiritual. Principle number two of oneness, if you're taking notes, Dr. Tony Evans writes, he says, one of the great hindrances to, to oneness in the body of Christ today is our unwillingness to engage each other socially. You know, it's interesting because, like, every now and then you'll, like, hear about, like, you know, a white church and a black church getting together for, like, a potluck dinner or they do a special project together. But I've found, like, more often than not, as soon as it's over, they go their separate ways, you know? Like, no more contact. There's no, like, depth of relationship because here's the reason. It's artificially forced. But Jesus says true oneness is actually very organic. It just engages from actually showing, engaging, and, and inviting each other into your life socially. I mean, doesn't get more social than, like, hey, can I have a drink? Or in our world, like, hey, you want to grab a beer? Hey, you want to get a coffee? Like, it's very, the most natural of social invitations to walk over and scale over racial barriers to build a bridge to oneness. I saw a beautiful example of this uh, last Sunday. There's a family or congregation who actually moved here from France. And uh, one of the reasons they, they're like, we love liquids because of the diversity. They said, well, every week, like when the spiritual care team is up here, people who pray for you after, they said, it's like the UN. They said it's awesome. There's like Nigerian and Guatemalan and Asian. There's, you know, Anglos, Europeans and Koreans and Puerto Ricans. And, and so after last week's service, they said, you know, we took to heart the challenge you gave to open your heart and your home to brothers and sisters of another race. And so that family from France actually invited a, a black brother who's brand new to Liquid over for dinner. Just transferred here to New Jersey and his family's still down south. He's here to work. And they said, you know, we found out it was his birthday. And so you know what we did? We went and bought a birthday cake. And they said, we had the most amazing time. We had dinner together, and what a blessing to our families, especially our kids. They talked about movies for hours. They said, it was like such a joy-filled time. And they said, we are so glad because he ministered to us. He's actually going to take our three older kids out to the movies this week. And I heard that, and I was like, praise God for that. I love that because that's what organic unity looks like in the body of Christ. See, it's not some top-down like government program or for seminar, or like, hey guys, next Sunday is diversity day, you're going to sing Kumbaya, you know, it's, it's, it's as simple as a family of one race just inviting a brother or sister of another race over for birthday cake, and go to the movies together. That's how simple yet profound oneness is. So here's a second question for you to answer honestly. When was the last time you visited the home or apartment of a person of a different race? See that question there? It's awkward, right? Notice I didn't ask, hey, do you work with someone of another race? Because we all were like, oh, well, my, you know, I work with a lot of different people. No. I asked, when was the last time you ever opened your home or you stepped into someone else's home? It's significant because Jesus says the social inevitably leads to the spiritual. When he asked this woman for a drink, he was building a bridge to actually meet a deeper spiritual need. He didn't just want a drink of water. When he engaged this woman, Jesus didn't care about the color of her skin he cared about the state of her soul. He basically, Jesus is like, oh, thank you so much. Mm. Wow, Ooh, hot day. This water is good, but uh, next time you should ask me uh, for a drink. I'll give you some living water. You'll never be thirsty again. And one's like, what? What is this Aquafina you speak of? You know what? <laughs> and it says, he told her, go call your husband and come back. 
I want to make this a family affair. And he brings up this topic of marriage. Now, remember, Samaritans, this is touchy because interracial marriage is how this whole feud started. And so the woman goes, uh, I, uh, I, uh, mm, I have no husband. If you look there in your own translation, this is my translation. Jesus is like, you got that right. He says, fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man with now actually isn't your husband either. He belongs to Mrs. Jones down the street. What? <laughs> Suddenly, the social conversation gets very personal. <laughs> Guys, that's what happens when you invest the time to build a bridge. When you have humility to enter another's world, guess what? You get access to their soul, their successes, as well as their sins. Don't miss that. If Jesus had been willing to engage her socially, he would have missed the opportunity to actually talk to her spiritually. And the truth is this. Tony Evans, I love this. He writes this. He says, a lot of times, we want people to get to heaven who we're not even willing to talk with on earth. And we block the gospel from advancing. But Jesus finds common ground in just a social setting to present this spiritual message about everlasting life to a marginalized woman. And in so doing, he illustrates principle three of oneness. Christ must always come before your culture. You see, whatever race or whatever background you are from, whatever culture or ethnic heritage you have, never let your racial heritage or culture get in the way of your commitment to Jesus Christ. Christ comes first, always. As a follower of Jesus... One of your purposes in life is to be a minister of reconciliation. That's what Paul calls you. He says, you were made to reconcile. That means to repair relationships within families and races and communities. And Jesus says, okay, I'll show you how it works. I mean, he steps over the segregation of his society and ministers to a woman who's trapped in, let's be honest, it's a chronic cycle of sexual brokenness. And instead of like kind of avoiding her or condemning her or saying, well, such a Samaritan, that's how they all are, you know? He leans in, and he ministers on this deeply personal level. Again, let me ask you a third question to make things super personal. Is there any particular group, ethnicity or race, that you wouldn't want your children to marry if you're a parent? Or you'd be like, oh, I don't think I could ever marry if you're single. Does that make you nervous to talk about? Because it makes the Samaritan woman very nervous. <laughs> Remember, she's like, I'm treated as second class because I interracially married a Gentile. And she's like, I wasn't just married once, twice, three, four, five, five times. So when Jesus brings up this topic of marriage, it throws her. And she throws up this kind of religious smokescreen of her own. This is funny. Look at this verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. Hmm, I didn't know we were talking about prophecy. Now watch what she does. She goes, our fathers, that is my daddy, and my granddaddy, and his daddy, and his great-great-granddaddy, we all worshiped on this mountain. But say this phrase together. You people, <laughs> a racial slur if I ever heard one, you people claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. What she's saying is, Jesus, I see you're religious, but I ain't like you, all right? Our people go to church over here, you go over there, we're different. We have different backgrounds, different worship styles. My, my father's, my daddy, his daddy, his, my granddaddy, my great-great-great-granddaddy, they taught me, we don't mix. We do church different, so I'm all confused by the way you people worship God. Actually, racist herself, right? <laughs> to which Jesus responds directly, woman, <laughs> believe me, <laughs> a time's coming when you're going to worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, so you're both wrong. God is what? Spirit. And his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. 
You circle that word spirit, circle that word truth in your notes. Very important because spirit and truth, the right heart and the right facts are both necessary if you're going to embrace true biblical oneness, not cultural oneness. What does it mean to worship God in spirit and truth? When Jesus says God's spirit, in other words, he's like, what color is spirit, right? There's no color. God doesn't have a body. He doesn't have skin, so this is irrelevant to him. But God is spirit means Jesus is like, this is his very essence. This is the very character and person of God. And the Christian God's character is defined by unity. It's one God made up of three persons. It's where we get the term Trinity. You've heard Trinity before? Put a little illustration in your notes. This will help you. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. But altogether, three make up God. They're united. God is one. Three persons, co-equal, different persons, but one God. They share a unity of love and purpose and we are made in that image. So understand, whenever we use division to foster hatred, whether it's racial hatred, political hatred, gender hatred, whatever that is, we actually fail to show God's image. We actually fail our purpose to reflect our daddy. That's why Jesus prays for unity in the father's house, because daddy don't show up when there's not unity in the house. Your daddy is one. And so Jesus prays, Father, may they be one as we are one. I and you and you and them and us and them. Oneness in Christ is what is desperately needed. It's what Jesus wants with his bride. In fact, that's a great illustration of oneness, Christian marriage. When you have two different people of two different backgrounds, they become what? One flesh, brand new family. But remember, gut check, you guys know, the real test comes when race gets added to the mix. Don't forget, Samaritans are looked down upon because they married interracially, and sadly, there are still some people today who view interracial marriage the same way 2,000 years later. Can I ask? Fourth awkward question. What do you think when you see interracial couples? Like, what, what happens inside of you? If you're a parent here, can I ask you, would it be okay if your child married somebody of another color as long as they love God and follow Jesus? I asked Pastor Nithin and his wife Jackie to share their story about the blessings and challenges of oneness in their interracial marriage and family. I remember looking down at my hands as a little kid and thinking, my hands look different than the other kids. That's the thing when I first noticed that there was a difference between me and everyone else around us. Actually, a lot of times people think because I'm married to him that I'm Indian. They just assume that. It is kind of funny though because people just make a lot of assumptions about my background and lots of people will come up and speak to me in different languages and I usually don't understand them and, I, and then they don't believe me when I say like, where are you from? When I say French Canadian or Scottish, they're like, no, that's not true. Someone once said to me, Nathan is really handsome even though he's so dark. Things like that where I don't know if they would say that to me if I was the same color as Nathan, if they would say, oh, he's handsome aside from the fact that he's dark. Since being married for seven years, an issue that did come up, I think also with having children, was related to school. I was talking with someone in my community about the school. They said, oh yeah, I took a tour of the school and I just don't know if I want my son to go there because I went there and there weren't really any white kids there. It took me a while to really process what she said to me. And then when I went home, I cried because I just thought she would look in that classroom and see Selah or Wesley and think that's not a good classroom because 
they are white. The true test of racial reconciliation isn't, can you be my brother? It's actually, can you be my brother-in-law? Because one of the things I've noticed is I think a lot of people can intellectually say in their minds, you know, I'm, I have no problem with different races or different cultures, but then all of a sudden your daughter or your son marries someone or is dating someone of a different race, of a different culture, and then all of a sudden all this stuff that you thought you never had to deal with comes up to the surface. If you are someone that was struggling with having a child in an interracial relationship or marriage, I would think you might need to ask yourself, what is it that is causing you to see two humans as so different? Because at the end of the day, we're all people made in God's image. And I think if you start to ask yourself that question, why am I feeling this way? You might actually reveal some things in your heart that you might not realize are there. And I think that would probably be a good journey to go on. I wanted someone that loved Jesus, and that was the number one priority. And my wife loves Jesus with her, all of her heart, soul, mind, and strength. And not only that, man, she loves people. And you just see how she loves God through the way she treats people. And so for me, that is really what draws me to her continually, every day. Thanks, honey. He's all right, too. <laughs> <laughs> Can we thank Jackie and Nithin for sharing their story with us? Their kids are beautiful. They have these beautiful children. Hey, can I just say, like as pastor of this church, if you are an interracial family, we see you, we welcome you, we bless you. I'm like so thrilled you're part of our church family because we actually see Jesus more clearly because of you. Amen? I like what Nithin said. He said, the true test of racial reconciliation is not just asking a question, hey, can I be your brother in Christ, but can I be your brother-in-law, right? You, this is gut check. You know you've embraced bone-deep, real, authentic oneness. When it doesn't matter if your son or daughter marries, you know, black, white, Asian, Latino, Italian, Egyptian, Indian, Peruvian, whatever for a spouse. So that's a question for parents here. I'm a parent. I got two kids, okay? And the question is, are you okay with your son or daughter marrying someone of a different skin color as long as they follow Christ and love God? Because believe it or not, there are still some people today who would rather their child marry a non-Christian of the same race than someone with a different ethnic background who is a Christian. Let me just be very clear. It's not oneness. It's hypocrisy. Biblical oneness radically expands our definition of family. So it's never, can I be your brother or sister in Christ? It's more, can I be your brother or sister-in-law? That's one way to tell if oneness is authentic. Jesus said, God is spirit. There's no color to his skin. And so a spirit of loving unity is core to his character. And whenever races become one flesh under God, it's to be celebrated as any marriage or family is because it showcases the power of unity in Christ. Jesus says, I want worshipers who will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So can we talk about truth for a second? Because the truth is in Christ, we have more that unites us than divides us. Amen? And yet when we go home to our houses and families, sometimes our culture can kind of trump our commitment to Christ. What is proclaimed on Sunday, we ain't always living out and practicing on Monday. Sometimes, like, the influence of our family has a way of kind of pulling us back into old patterns of prejudice that negate the truth of the gospel. Um, you know, first, this woman pushes off Jesus because she's like, hey, my daddy, my granddaddy, my great-granddaddy warned me about you people. 
I remember, um, again, baseball story, right? One of my close teammates was one of the Italian guys on the team, and we would go to his house after practice, you know, get a drink or a snack, and we'd always come up on the front porch, and his Italian grandfather was always sitting there. He's, like, from the old country. Like, he's, you know, Sicilian, and, hey, what's up, Papa? Yeah, da, da, da. And he's like, how was practice today, guys? And we're like, oh, good. He goes, okay, you be good boys. And we're like, okay, we're getting a drink. And as we're walking, he goes, and never forget. And we're like, yeah, Papa. And he's like, never trust the Irish. Like, what? Where did I even come? Never trust the Jews. We're like, where did the war? He's like this sweet old man, like a very sweet grandpa. You know, it's rocking there, and it's, you know, this wild racism comes out. Listen, here's the problem today. A lot of believers have Jesus in their heart, but they got grandpa in their head. Some Christians listen more to their forefather than to their heavenly father. And here's the truth. If you have a deeper allegiance to your cultural heritage than to the truth of God's word, you will fail the oneness test every time, amen? As a Christian, your first allegiance is to the scripture, not your the skin color, not your ethnic background. In God's eyes, the problem of race is never a problem of skin. It's a problem of sin. And so when we hold to these historical prejudices, especially the ones our forefathers legitimized, we override the truth of God. And that's when Jesus says, uh-uh, you're wrong. When there's a conflict between culture and God's truth, culture must always submit to Christ. When the woman's Samaritan background crossed God's truth, Jesus called her out. He's like, no, no, no. There's one kind of worshiper that the Father's looking for. And it doesn't matter if they're South American, Asian, Chinese, Greek, German, Cuban, Puerto Rican. As long as they worship my Father in spirit and truth, my daddy welcomes them into the family. Guys, that's the power of oneness. That's the vision Jesus painted. Yeah, you can clap. We clap for that. That's an amazing thing. When this, it's so powerful. Look what happens to this woman and her family and her village. In the end, we're told she doesn't just like embrace Jesus. She puts her faith in him as her personal savior and it transforms the community. Verse 39 says, many of the Samaritans from that town, what happened? Believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. He like read my mail. He knew what's in my heart. (laughs) So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And how long did he stay? Two days. Let's t- spend the weekend together. And because of his words, many more became believers. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of oneness. Christ crosses the racial line. He finds common ground with another culture. And one of the greatest evangelistic revivals in the New Testament takes place. Many half-breed Samaritans become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Full-fledged members of the family of God. And not only that, they urged Jesus, please stay with us. Stay for two days. You can live with me. Crash upstairs. What? Don't miss it. Jesus accomplished in 48 hours what his culture couldn't do in 700 years. God can do in a minute what man will not do in a millennium. How do you go from we don't talk to let's spend the weekend together? Crash at my place. Guys, that's the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus prayed for you and for me in John 17. Before he died, he said, Father, may they be what? One, as we are one. I and them, you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know that you sent me and you have loved them even as you have loved me. What is The ultimate apologetic for Christianity, how do we know it's true? It ain't the size of our churches. It ain't the style of our music. It's not the scale of our outreaches. It's oneness. When a broken and confused world sees the bride of Christ unified in love, 
when daddy's kids are one as he is one, then the world knows that Jesus is Lord of all. That's the power of oneness. That's what Jesus prayed for. And who wants to be the answer to that prayer? You? Let's do it, guys. Let's be that church. Let's be the answer to Jesus' prayer. That our church could be known for radical unity amidst dazzling diversity. One faith, one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And to him goes the glory forever and ever. Amen? Let's stand up for prayer. Come on, everyone stand up, all of our campuses. Stand up right you are, and I'm going to ask you to do something awkward. Grab the hand of the person next to you, either side. It's all right, they don't got cooties. It's okay. Just a minute. Come on, grab the hand. Let's raise our hands. Let's actually raise them up together. We're praying before God. Father God, we thank you, Lord. We thank you. We are standing right now united in Christ as your family. Father, look at the diversity here. We praise you for it, Father God. And we ask, Lord, we want to be one as you are one. We bless you, Father, for creating us in your image. We bless you, Son. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to reconcile us to yourself. Holy Spirit, come. We invite you now. Cleanse our hearts. Fill us, Lord, with supernatural unity that the world may know Jesus is Lord of all. We pray that in one voice and all God's people said together, amen. Amen. Let's worship people in spirit and in truth. Come on.